13, beginning in verse 13 towards the end. Job picks up here saying, Keep silent and let me speak. Then let come to me what may. Why do I put myself in jeopardy and take my life in my hands? Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. I will surely defend my ways to his face. Indeed, this will turn out for my deliverance. For no godless man would dare come before him. Listen carefully to my words. Let your ears take in what I say. Now that I have prepared my case, I know I will be vindicated. Can anyone bring charges against me? If so, I will be silent and die. Only grant me these two things, O God, and then I will not hide from you. Withdraw your hand far from me, and stop frightening me with your terrors. Then summon me, and I will answer, or let me speak, and you reply. How many wrongs and sins have I committed? Show me my offense and my sin. Why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Will you torment a wind-blown leaf? Will you chase after dry chaff? For you write down bitter things against me and make me inherit the sins of my youth. You fasten my feet in shackles. You keep close watch on all my paths by putting marks on the soles of my feet. And thus reads the inspired and inerrant word of God. Let me pray for us. Dear gracious God, this remarkable book is both stirring, disturbing, and comforting. And we pray that we might gain a heart of wisdom as we plumb its depths as we try to listen to your spirit as you would teach us and guide us. We ask these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ. Amen. No doubt many Americans and sports fans worldwide were both shocked and inspired, perhaps last weekend, as they saw five-time Olympic swimming star Dara Torres complete and win the 50-meter women's freestyle event with a new American record and securing her place at the upcoming Beijing Olympics in less than a month. What's most remarkable about her story is that Dara Torres is 41 years old. In fact, she competed in her first Olympics in 1984 before most of the other women on the team were even born. And, uh, and to add uh, amazement to her story, she even took off uh, a time a few years ago to give birth to what's now a two-year-old daughter. How? How is it that this woman, who is twice the age of many of her competitors in a sport that requires such strength and speed... Well, an article in the news this week reveals at least part of her secret, which is advanced training techniques. Trainers tell us that we lose about a half percentage point a year in our muscle mass, in our strength, in our response time, unless we maintain it vigorously. And so, by strength of will and determination, advanced training techniques, and a blessed crop of healthy and long-suffering genes, uh, Mrs. Torres has remained in top Olympic form much longer than anybody would have anticipated. But no doubt, Dara Torres has fought many enemies along the way, 
an aging body. Naysayers in her sport who would call her crazy for continuing her competition. Even her own personal doubts. Likewise, in the person of Job, we find an amazing individual persevering in what turns out to be a grueling contest of wills. Job has suffered the alienation of God, his own personal doubts, and a growing hostility from his comforters. Job is keeping up a fight, maintaining this ongoing argument with his friends and even God. And his perseverance is as unlikely as a 41-year-old woman winning the gold medal in the 50-meter freestyle in the Olympics. Job meets this challenge with persevering, enduring hope and a determination not to let his faith atrophy. I'm afraid that most of us give up too quickly in the face of opposition when we feel that God is not with us in the midst of crisis. But the hope of the gospel promises that God is faithful and he will reward those who diligently seek him. Well, in review of chapter 11, we find that Zophar, the third friend, proves the least tactful, the least considerate of all of Job's friends. He opens up in his first few lines dismissing Job's words as mere idle talk. He calls Job a babbler, but it's Zophar who will prove to be the windbag. His blunt motive is revealed in verse 3, that he intends to shame Job, to put him in his place. And then a greater offense is committed in verse 4 when he begins to taunt Job for Job's claim to be righteous, to be without fault. And so, right from the start and throughout chapter 11, Zophar establishes premise that Job is guilty of great sin, and he simply must repent. Zophar, like the other two friends, is an example to us of how not to comfort somebody in suffering. Zophar is a man who cares about being right more than he cares about caring and doing the right thing to comfort people in sorrow. He reminds us that we must never seek to comfort somebody or counsel or even confront somebody if we have an axe to grind. It is better to keep silent until your heart is in a condition to love the person. Even if we suspect that somebody is in denial or is offering up a pretense of righteousness, it's usually not our job to confront them. It is wiser to lead the person by asking questions, to perhaps help the person indict him or herself, rather than getting into a rut, digging in the trenches of an I'm right, you're wrong contest, which happens between Job and his friends. Well, before Zophar goes on to challenge Job to repent in verse 13, he wants to show Job in verses 5 through 12 just how ignorant he really is. So first, he calls upon God to speak. 
and insists that Job perhaps is resisting the wisdom of his counselors. Now, Zophar will eventually be granted his wish. God will speak, but not in any way that Zophar expected. Now, in verse 6 comes the greatest insult of the entire chapter, maybe in the entire book. I'd have to study it for a comparison. But in verse 6, Zophar contends that Job has not even suffered as greatly as he deserves. But without a missing a beat, Zophar continues on in verse 7. And labors in vain to outdo Job with his meditation upon the greatness of God. And his words are nice, but they remain short-sighted. Zophar tries to measure the boundless power of God. But in doing so, neglects the measureless breadth and length of God's love. Even verse 12 is contemptuous towards Job, insinuating that Job can't even receive wisdom. Another reminder, may we never taunt somebody or take offense to anybody's apparent disregard for the wisdom that we have to offer them. Let them take it or leave it. Do not take such a personal interest in another person's receptivity to your ministry that you would disregard them with contempt for rejecting you. Well, Zophar finally cuts the chase in verse 13 of chapter 11 by calling Job to repent. And he lays out several conditions. If Job would devote his heart to God, if he would reach out his hands to God and put away his sin and so forth, then God would surely respond and lift Job up out of his misery caused Job to forget all of his troubles. His darkness would be filled with light. His devastation would be replaced with security. Job would be without fear, safe and sound, if he would just repent. The danger with this teaching is similar to the health and wealth gospel. It disregards a biblical view of suffering. It assumes that God only wants to bless us as long as we have faith and repent and do what is good and right. Now, the fact of the matter in this story is that Job indeed will be confronted by God and he will repent. And God will indeed bless Job greatly, but not because Zophar was right. I think what's most commendable about Job and his response to these men is that he refuses to repent with a false or a shallow guilt. He will not offer up a premature repentance. It would be like the husband who apologizes to his wife just to get her off his back. He puts on a good front of remorse, but secretly he resents her confrontation. Job doesn't play that game. Job, rather, will not take a shortcut to reconciliation. He will not bargain with God. He is a man of integrity, and he refuses to confess and to repent until he understands the severity of his sin and is fully able to take responsibility for it with genuine remorse. That's why David cries out in Psalm 51, 
against you and you alone, O Lord, have I sinned, taking it directly to God. These men will not play quid pro quo, jumping through religious hoops, trying to manipulate God. Job wants God more than improved circumstances. We can take another lesson from these friends to remind us that we cannot force another person's repentance. We can confront somebody. We can challenge him or her to turn from their sin. But we must always give that person the freedom to deal with their hearts before God. We must allow God the freedom in his timing to bring that person to repentance. Now, of course, in the end, Job does repent. But it's not under the pressure of his friends, but under the all-consuming power of God. Job needs the presence of God to repent. And so do we. I would say another final note before we move to Job's speech about Job's friends. I think we should look at our own selves, our own religiosity, and think about the ways that we are far too like Job's friends. I think Job's friends can convict us of a pervasive, smug self-righteousness that is all too tempting for those of us who've been Christians for a long time. I think the friends here convict us of our quick, pat answers, our presumption that we know a lot about God or about theology. Uh, I think they convict us of our nice, neat, and tidy God-in-a-box Christianity. These friends convict us of our failure, failure to truly love people and persevere with them in trial. We are far too quick to write people off. To judge them. Now certainly there is a time to rebuke and confront people in their folly and sin. But there's also a time for us to keep our mouths shut. And to let God do his work. Well Job remarkably responds to the scathing words of his friend. And he offers up a speech to his friends in chapters 12 and part of 13 before entering into a prayer directly to God. Now, Job is being wrongly attacked and falsely accused. What is the proper godly response in such a situation? Now, perhaps in some circumstances, silence may be the best response. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you become like him. Oftentimes, when we try to defend ourselves, that's all we do is become defensive. But there are times when there is much more at stake. And I believe that is the case with Job's situation. Job has a calling here to defend not only his integrity, but to respond to the simple-mindedness of his friends. Both to preserve God's honor and truth, but also for the good of these friends. Now, the section has some bookends around it from 12, chapter 12, verse 2, and chapter 13, verse 3, where Job repeats this statement, I am not inferior to you. Job stands up to his friends. He does not cower. He does not cry back. He's not ashamed of himself. But he establishes his sense of knowledge and truth. And in doing so, Job is not being arrogant. 
nor is he being defensive. He is standing firm in what he knows to be true and fighting against false accusation. I think Job is is similar to Paul when he defends himself against the super apostles in his epistles, those who were antagonizing him and criticizing his ministry. Paul, Job, and Moses were all accused of arrogance. And yet we could find that their brashness was not due to pride, but rather a genuine humility, an absence of pious presumption, but done in the fear of the Lord. So Job goes on in verse 5, and he first he rebukes these men for their lack of pity. And repeatedly he's going to exhort them to be silent. These are men he calls who are at ease and comfortable, and so they in dismay, show contempt towards the unfortunate. But then in verses 6 and following, Job sets out on a great wisdom discourse that we don't have time to read or study in detail now. But let it suffice to say that Job is unmatched by his friends. Job has wisdom. Job knows the Lord. And they cannot stand before him in terms of understanding theological depth. But I believe where we pick up in in 13.3 is is really the crux of the matter. The real crux of the problem or the challenge, the conflict between Job and his friends, is what Job has to say in 13.3. He says, But I desire to speak to the Almighty and to argue my case with God. What do we think about that? Is Job arrogant? Is Job presumptuous? Is Job knocking too hard on the doors of heaven to get an audience with God? Well, I believe Job's friends thought that way. That they took great offense at his pretentiousness to want an audience with God. This is too much for them. Job, this respectable religious man, sounds like a fanatic. Making God personal. Making God available. Speaking as if, though, God might somehow respond to an individual. Job is seeking a personal God. And it's Job who is the more biblical. And his friends who are in danger of apostasy. Job's determination for a hearing with God is consistent with the teachings of Jesus. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Likewise, Jesus illustrates this very point with several parables. The parable of the friend who receives a traveling guest in the middle of the night, and he doesn't have any food, so he goes next door and persistently asks his neighbor for food until he gets what he wants. Or the persistent widow who continues to go back to the judge, who doesn't want anything to do with her, until he finally gives in to her. How much more will your Heavenly Father hear you and respond from your persistent cries for help? And then there's the friends who carry the paralyzed friend literally through the roof, to get before Jesus. In each of these cases, the people get what they seek because 
they do not give up. You know, like Job, this, the widow in the parable seeks an audience with an apparently unjust judge. And yet Job knows better. And we should know better. God sometimes will seem distant and unresponsive, sometimes seems dismissive towards our desire for his mercy and his comfort. And yet the Bible is clear. God rewards those who diligently seek him. Many people have questions for God, but how many people are willing to wait patiently for an answer? How badly do we wish to meet with God? In 13, verse 4, Job goes on the offensive. Job is bold and courageous to offer his own scathing rebuke to his friends. He calls them, in verse 4, worthless physicians. Job needs healing. But these friends only wound him further. How many of us return to an incompetent doctor who hasn't healed us but only harms us further? The beauty of this is that in Job... We see a man who does not give up on his friends. Most of us would have written these friends off. Most of us would have withdrawn silently, comforted ourselves with sulking. And yet Job amazingly stays engaged with these witless men. He rebukes them in 16.2, calling them miserable comforters. He repeats in verse 5 to be silent, for this would be wisdom for you. In truth, Job is the true friend who's willing to confront these men for their shallow-mindedness and their poor ministry. Job, in his courage, is willing to sacrifice these friendships, the only friendships that he has. He refuses false comfort and is willing to take his refuge in God alone. How many of us are willing to risk a relationship by actually telling our friends what we really think if we need to confront a matter? Consider Jesus, the perfect man, who did not mince with words. Jesus rebuked Peter, calling him Satan, for standing in his way, trying to deter him from the path to the cross. Paul also rebuked Peter publicly over his compromise with the gospel by withdrawing from fellowship with Gentiles. These men teach us. Job, I believe, helps us as we seek to do relationships well, that we might learn to be direct with people, to be clear, always in the spirit of love, not vindictively, but with grace and compassion. In verses 10 through 12, Job goes on to warn his friends of their false religion. It's clear to Job that these men do not fear God, and judgment awaits them. He calls their wisdom mere ashes. Their arguments are a defense of clay. How many friends and family members do we have whose defenses on the day of judgment will be as shaky as a house of cards? Would we be so bold like Job to risk that relationship, to challenge them? Do we love peace and respect more than the eternal security of our dear loved ones? 
May we learn from this man and his suffering to be bold. Job's perseverance comes to a wonderful climax in verses 13 through 15. Once more, he challenges friends to be silent. And yet, unfortunately, Job will have to endure two more rounds with these men before they will finally conclude that he is righteous in his own sight and keep their peace and be silent. Verse 14 of chapter 13 is revealing. We might ask ourselves, why does Job keep persevering? Why does he keep enduring this ridicule? Well, he asks the same question himself. Why does he keep voicing this misery and receiving ridicule in response? It's because Job is invested. He is committed to these men. They are his comforters, but he's there for a reason, to love them and teach them as well. And I think Job illustrates for us that the more intimate we are with people, the more free we are to voice our displeasure with them. If someone can't take confrontation, we lose intimacy. But if we can confront one another lovingly and biblically, that increases intimacy. And so Job pays these men a compliment by drawing near to them. And they will all grow together. In a comparison of religion, Job's friends, these comforters, are rigid. They are uptight. In contrast, Job is raw. He is candid and vulnerable. Job, by comparison, is the more human. He is the more real, and he is the one who is further along on the road of redemption. And we see why in verse 15. With a wonderful expression, a statement of faith that could have been the clincher to end the debate had these friends listened to it. But Job cries out in verse 15, referring to God, Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. My, if these friends had really heard that, they would have ended their arguments. I mean, what can you say to that? In fact, some speculate that in the mysteries of heaven, God won the wager with the devil at that very point. His man had overcome. The issue was settled. Satan, who has provoked Job over and over and over again, is defeated. Because Job will not bail. He will not abandon God, though he continues to endure this seemingly meaningless suffering. By all appearances, God had abandoned him. God seems to be against him, hates him, harms him. And yet Job holds on trusting in the end that somehow, someway, God will vindicate him. He did not know how, where, or when. And against such faith, Satan has no power. Such was Abraham's faith. When asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, And such was the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ in the garden when tempted to offer back the cup, asking his father, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but thy will be done. Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. We'll support his case in verses 16 and following. 
Job goes on to argue that this will all turn out for his deliverance, and he is right. In verse, 14, verse 18, he reaffirms his confidence in his vindication before God. In verse 19, a wonderful verse, he asks, Can anyone bring charges against me? And we think this verse is what's quoted by Isaiah in chapter 50, and even Paul in Romans chapter 8, when he cries out, Who can bring any charges against God's elect? If God is for me, who can be against me? How could Job make such a wonderful testimony? On the former side of the cross, with such minimal knowledge of God's redemption, Job knows enough to know that God is both just and the justifier, as Paul will go on to explain to us in Romans chapter 3. Job is not trusting in his own righteousness. He is trusting in God's justice and mercy. It's Job's friends that seek to turn him towards self, to trust in his goodness, to make his amends with God and go on and be happy. That's the way of worldly religion. Job knows better. Job will not hope in himself. And friend, it's not till our hope in self and our own goodness completely bottoms out that we are ready to place our hope fully in the Lord. And so Job rests his case for now, and he turns directly to God in prayer in verses 20 and following. Job's prayer is a model for us in how to be bold before God. In it, he asks for two things. First, that the Lord would withdraw his chastening hand of punishment to remove the terrors from him. But Job also requests that God would summons him to call him forth to the bench. In verse 23, Job exposes himself before God and says, Please show me my sin. Do we do that? Do we ask the Lord to show us our sin that we might repent and come to know him and receive his glory? In verse 24, Job will ask that the Lord would not be silent, that he would not treat him like an enemy anymore. In verse 26, he cries out for God not to punish him for the sins of his youth. Clear evidence that Job was fully aware that he is a sinner and needs God's grace. Job wants confrontation. Job wants relationship. Job wants reconciliation. He doesn't want religion. He says no to health and wealth and the good life and respectable status in society if the trade-off is God is withdrawn. Better to be poor in the presence of God than rich in the eyes of the world without God's presence. Job, in a way, is experiencing what the rich young ruler rejected. Friends, our times of destitution are an opportunity to draw near to God. And Job shows us how we might persevere and seek God earnestly. He shows us how to love foolish and well-meaning friends. And he shows us how to desire the better things of the kingdom over the worthless things of earth. Job 
helps us to see the way of the cross. When hope fades, we must first abandon all of our false ones. Our ultimate trust lies not in the comfort of our friends, nor even the compassion of our spouses, not in medical cures, not in turnaround markets or better job offers. Our hope is in the Lord who upholds the downtrodden. We are maintained by a vision of our champion, Jesus Christ and him crucified, that we may endure and overcome our temptation to despair in adversity. I suspect that Dara Torres was sustained by a vision of Olympic glory, of accomplishing something never done before. And she indeed endured great tests against her body, against her competition to remain fit. She and Job remind us that we can endure a whole lot more than we think we can. But we must put away lesser hopes and cling fast to the gospel of God's grace. Consider the words of the book of Hebrews. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Job is a forerunner to the Lord Jesus to pave the path of scripture, of overcoming by faith. Friends, we are in a better position than Job. We see Jesus. We understand the cross. We stand upon a firm foundation that God will vindicate us. Jesus overcame sin, temptation, and death so that you and I don't have to. In your struggle, rest in him. A sure and certain hope in this life and in the life to come. Let us pray. Gracious God, you have promised to be with us in adversity and hardship. You have demonstrated in your word your faithfulness. That you are the God who keeps your promises. You are the God who enables us to overcome great hardship. We thank you for the testimony of Job and other men and women who give us hope and encouragement as we continue on in our race of faith. Strengthen us and renew us. Lead us and guide us from this place as we depart. We do ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.